Welcome to the Meaningful Work Matters podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Soren, founder of Eudaimonic by Design. On this podcast, we'll dive into the world of meaningful work, explore its complexities, and examine its impact on people and the organizations they're a part of. Each episode features insightful conversations with cutting-edge experts who are successfully navigating the challenges of meaningful work. We hope to offer you ideas, frameworks, and tools to unlock potential and design work that's fulfilling, impactful, and supports everyone's well-being. Subscribe or follow us now, and let's make meaningful work matter. Today, we want to take a step back and ask, what does meaning actually mean? And to do that, I've asked one of the world's experts on meaning to join us to share how the science has evolved over the past couple decades, and especially what leaders and organizations can do to help individuals find more meaning in responsible and ethical ways. Michael Steger is a professor of psychology and the founding director of the Center for Meaning and Purpose at Colorado State University. He earned his doctorate in 2005 from the University of Minnesota, and for close to 20 years, he's been researching how people flourish by building meaning and purpose in their lives and in their work. He walks his own talk on congruence, significance, and purpose, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to him on Meaningful Work Matters. Mike, thank you so much for being with us today. I am so excited to be able to have you here. You are ultimately one of the people who I have spent about a decade now reading all of the work that I can possibly get my hands on when I first encountered your work when I did the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program at University of Pennsylvania about a decade ago. I had my mind blown in about a thousand directions because I thought, wow, who knew that there was somebody actually doing the hardcore, interesting scientific work of deconstructing what meaning in life actually is? It is such an honor and a pleasure to be able to call you a colleague and to be able to have you on this podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to to see you and be part of this this podcast you're launching to help folks get a, a better grip than maybe they already have on, on these important topics of how we can have work in our lives and still like our lives. So I, I like, I think that's a very noble aim and I'm, I feel very honored to be part of it. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what your relationship to the topic of meaning is? Um, I got interested in meaning pretty early as a person without having any idea where that would, would take me or even that that was the name of the stuff I was interested in. So a lot of my early clinical work when I was working as a therapist, I'd try to dive into meaning things inspired by, you know, primarily Victor Frankl and Irvialum, you know, some of the, the classic existential psychotherapy approaches. And so I went, when I finally decided I was going to shoot for my PhD or finish it, depending on how you, you interpret my earlier academic uh, misadventures, um, I just figured I would just learn more about that and to find out that, or at least to demonstrate that there was a way to, to study this stuff um, was just one of the most exciting moments in my life. So I've kind of been doing that. I think I clicked my first data on meaning um, in 2002 or 2003. So it's been just about 20 years of trying to understand uh, what's going on. And it's been an exciting adventure. 
I am curious for you to tell us a little bit about what you have learned at the top level about what meaning in life actually is. You're one of the people who have have really created some substantial definitions for what this idea is, uh, and over that 20 years, really changed the field. So, so give us a give us a high level view of what is meaning in life. The first lesson is it's different from every person, practically speaking. So, so how I entered into like what is meaning in life, my question was how do people think about what they're supposed to do as living beings in life, right? Like, how does it all come together to to justify that experience, to direct it in particular directions, and to sort of make sense of what's happening along the way? And, you know, that's not how everyone thinks about it, per se. And so we, one of the, one of the little judo tricks that we do in this field is leave a little bit of that stuff up to the brain of the person who's responding to our questionnaires or our other tools. So what meaning is for most of the history of this field is whatever someone says it is, right? Um, and you get some pretty honest responding, like some of my earliest studies, in case you're wondering, oh, everyone just says my life's super meaningful, just as meaningful as Nelson Mandela and everybody else. Um, we we have been able to, to show that these scores aren't particularly, at least in the early days, um, I don't know of, of a recent study, but in the early days, these scores aren't particularly influenced by social desirability or demand characteristics. So people are honest. If they think that life's kind of meaningful, they usually will say it's kind of meaningful, maybe a little plus. But, you know, so whatever content people are using, it behaves like almost any other psychological variable. So it really took quite a while of accumulating those data before there were there was a critical mass of other smart people in the field for us to really start to propose that we can do a better job of defining what at the very least what are people thinking about when they are answering questions like what is, is your life meaningful and so right now the consensus is sort of a, a, a tense version of three different dimensions one of which might be its own two dimensions but we'll see what you think about that so we'll start with the easiest one, which is the a sense of coherence. There's actually a, a standalone body of research by Anton Antonovsky um, beginning in the 80s around how having a sense of coherence can help you um, be more healthy even in the, in the face of health threats, right, like disease. And so the sense of coherence, as it's come into the meaning research more broadly, is can you make sense of your life? And when you open that up, it's do you have the ability to pull all the experiences of your life, all the written and unwritten rules into some kind of working mental model that that works for you, right? So can I understand my life? Do I see my place in the world? Do I know and accept who I am? Um, when I say something's going to happen, is it likely to happen? So is the world consistent and predictable? It just kind of centers us cognitively in an experience where we feel like we can grapple with what's going on around us. The antithesis is like raging chaos, right? So if we if we say like if your life is just nothing but chaos, it's not predictable. There's no sense of consistency. You're not even sure what your identity is. We can then say that's not so meaningful, right? So that's been around for a while as a concept, and um, you know I think that's going to be a solid one because we do have a, this cognitive struggle with why are we here? What are, you know? What does it mean to be a living person, all those curiosities that we have about the state of the human condition. The second sort of non-controversial one is purpose in life. And this gets a lot of its energy from uh, Viktor Frankl's work, of course, um, who talked about meaning in a way that is is 
about finding that one purpose that is kind of custom built for you and only you out in the world and then activating that and gaining strength from it so that's a that's one of the pieces about meaning i'll just bookmark real quickly is that meaning started in understanding human suffering it's not a typical uh, positive psychology variable about who's who can clap and smile the brightest it's about who can get through the worst things they faced in their in their experience so that does make it a little different that that makes a great home for um folks who are also happy to grapple with the dark side like carol riff who's the, the other big name in uh purpose in life that influenced me heavily and this is this idea that we have a sense of direction motivation and particularly in maybe like carol's approach and en almost energy in our life so it's you can see it as the motivational part of meaning and it's it's a big kind of purpose i'm on the big purpose side of things right so your purpose may or may not have anything to do with your weekly to-do list or but ideally it does but your purpose is so big so important to you and so um, generative of desires for how you want the world to be that even if you don't ever think you'll get to the finish line just the process of pursuing that purpose makes you feel alive and that you're directing your life energy in an important and valuable direction um i'll also point out i think it's my personal opinion i think it's hard to find the data on it but i think people can have more than one purpose and sometimes they conflict so mm -hmm. when we start talking about work and life balance uh i think you can have too much of a good thing in both areas so where it gets a little bit more controversial that the new is a new generation the new dimension that people are playing around with a lot I think they'll feel really intuitive, but I think they come from slightly different places. So in the way that Frank Martel and my collaborator and I talk about it, this last dimension is significance. And it's a little bit focused on, do you think that your own life has inherent value and is worth living, right? So is this experience of just being alive? Do a quick gut check. Am I happy I'm alive? Is this life worth it? You know, that's the kind of a significance gut check. So this personal um consenting to being alive in a sense and that links to some of the famous curmudgeons in in philosophy and philosophical history like Camus you know the biggest puzzle for philosophy is why we don't all just kill ourselves you know so this is kind of that part of meaning in life then that answers the why do you have a reason to live I I do because life is worth living that sort of thing so there's some preliminary data that that uh, Frank and I had in our paper where we introduced a measure for all these three dimensions that we have that dovetailed with work by Logan George and Crystal Park we have an existential mattering scale that scale is like big in its scope <laughs> the, would it matter to the universe if I had never existed like think on those terms and that's sort of like gets at this idea that in the cosmic sense of things we all have some kind of role to play so that's a beautiful idea it it's right now all being crunched into this sort of third convenient dimension of is this stuff does this stuff matter at some level um but i think that there's i think we'll my prediction is that we'll find that it's useful to measure them separately and we'll end up with four dimensions of coherence purpose significance and a broader sense of mattering it's super interesting to be able to hear you 
parse out all of these things that we just so easily smush together as meaning, uh, as as meaning or conflate meaning and purpose, and to and to recognize that there are actually these really important dimensions that that have a have a potential really big impact on the way in which we might experience a sense of meaning in our lives or define what that might mean in different kinds of ways. It's it's very much a one size fits none kind of way of thinking yeah, about it. Yeah. Yeah. So in fact, I think that something useful for folks to think about is that it's probably okay if they're way better at doing meaning in one of those three or maybe four dimensions. Like I think of them as just doorways into, into meaning and some just look better than others. Like I'm a, I'm really a coherence first guy, right? I just love to figure stuff out. I, I just, that's how my mind works. Purpose. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not very ambitious. So I don't have very many big goals I want to achieve. I just, I've got big lofty stuff. I just, as long as I'm pointing in that direction, that's fine. But, uh, you know, who cares? You know, so the, the, you know, it's coming along for me, the purpose side, the, the significant sign I think is really important because it's for me that feel when I think about is my life worth living? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't live my life only just for me. But then when I also think about other people, and working with other people or talking with other people or doing a workshop with other people, having students in my classes, I want them to really feel so important that their experience, as crappy as it can be sometimes, is just so valuable. So I, I so I think of it's weird for me, at least for significance, I think mostly about how important it is for people in general. And since I'm one of those, I should have it too. And the mattering stuff, uh uh, I guess I would think somewhat similarly, although I'm <laughs> the cog the coherent side of me really understands that none of us matter in any kind of big scheme of things. Like I like the question, like how much do you know about your 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 father's great grandfather or your you know your mom's great grandmother? Like we're just all gonna be forgotten and you know our, our constituent parts will be reused. So I don't I don't mind not mattering quite so much as other people might. But that doesn't mean my life is meaningless because I'm not you know, thinking I've made some huge contribution to the world that everyone's going to remember or even notice about. I don't have, like, I'm not going to, on my own, solve, you know, the extinction crisis or the climate crisis or anything like that. But working towards it my own way, that makes sense to me. So I feel like that's pretty good. So I would invite folks to consider that as well. Like, you get to do it your own way, too. And, you know, that there's different ways that you can integrate specific practices then that can lean towards your your meaning strengths and then also bolster areas that are a little bit less developed. So let's take this giant idea of meaning in life and these different dimensions of it, coherence, purpose, significance, mattering, and apply that specifically in the domain of work, meaningful work. What's the difference for you between the idea of meaningful work and the idea of meaning in life? Yeah, I think my thinking is, has been changing over the years on this. When I started doing meaningful work research, um, it was a few years after I started doing meaning in life research, and it was towards the close of my PhD program. It was really the first project I started to really pick up um, as I was thinking, I'm going to get a real job someday. And that was also work that began in collaboration with uh, another University of Minnesota grad student named Brian Dick. Um, and we happened to be at the same internship site for our pre-doctoral internship. And uh, we got to have more conversations in the first week at that internship site than we had previously because we were in different cohorts. 
So we're just talking about like these ideas of calling and, and what that would look like from a meaning standpoint. And the literatures are really different, right? There's not a lot of crossover research on meaning in life and meaningful work. Like some little folks will cite, you know, Victor Frankl, or they'll tell the parable of the cathedral or some of these like go-tos in both literatures, but there's not a lot of people working in both. So when you develop a literature on meaning in life, you're really looking at therapy literature, you're looking at a lot of palliative and oncological nursing literature, you're looking a lot a little bit of health literature, social psych, it's like bury that side, health and behavioral sciences in a sense. And then on the other side, when you're looking at meaningful work, suddenly you're reading like management journals and business ethics and like stuff that's like, where did this come from? Right. And then when you're collaborating with someone who's deep into calling, you're also trying to understand the cultural and in that case, religious heritage. And, you know, for me, I've always wanted my research to be talking about as universal as phenomena as possible. So um I I say that in full the full uh, apprehension and uh, comprehension of my my rooting as a highly individualistic person in a highly individualistic culture. So I know that I'm not fully representative, but at least I can get rid of things that I think are going to lead us astray, like being overly committed to one culture's or one religion's approach to things. It was really cool to that point exactly how multidisciplinary the meaningful work literature actually is. Because you do it, you have you have the management literature, you have a lot of sociology, you have a lot of anthropology, you have a lot of cultural theory. You also have the psychology, you have you have actual you, you know, you have you have biological biomarkers of meat. Like there's there's all of these different strands and just such a crazy exponential growth in the interest of writing about meaningful work too that i think half of all articles published on meaningful work have actually been published since 2019 um which is just insane in terms of how rapidly uh, all that field is growing yeah both those are the fields i'm meaning and have just been have been growing so fast in the last uh meaningful work in particular the last five years and meaning in life in the last decade or so and yeah, so you can you can with confidence say that we if we could read it all, which we can't anymore. We, we can't read it all. I, maybe meaningful work. There's still some hope, but meaning in life that that's been impossible for a while. It's thousands of articles every year. But if you could read it all, we would know more about what I think is humanity's central question: What does life mean? Just from the last two years, three years, than the history of human scientific endeavor and exploration Crazy. with data. So that's a wild feeling, but of course now it's so big that we don't even, we still can't know it. So I, I, I like the fact that even as we know more, we still are in a position where we actually can't fully know. But yeah, like the multidisciplinary side is really important because, um, you know, where I come at from things, I just want these sort of like abstract ideas that that should show up with a certain structural predictability when you measure them here, when you measure them in South Africa, when you measure them in Brazil, when you measure them in uh, you know, Malaysia. I was going to say Cambodia, but I'm not aware of any research yet from Cambodia. So hopefully soon, right? So, and then you you, you kind of get these. You try to get these universal principles, but they they are principles that kind of show up in a lot of different places. So, starting from that research, the the sociologically informed, the anthropologically informed, the ethics informed, the management informed, the leadership informed, all that sort of stuff over there. Um, you have one set of ideas, and that and that's been kind of mostly what I've written about. Um, you know, like my approach to meaningful work is 
kind of from the middle out, you know, like you, you have to have work that there's a point to it. It's not just, I guess, pointless work that amounts to nothing. Then it has to be perceived by you at least as being a positive, meaningful, subjective experience. And then beyond that, it probably shouldn't be cannibalizing too much with the rest of your life. So it should fit in line with what the broader venture of your life is, right? So I, I think we call that in some places like conciliation with the rest of your life's meaning. If I was really to, to think about where we're at now, I think we could really, I think there's a lot of potential value in, in at least in a practical way, pulling some of these dimensions of meaning and life into the workplace. I think this is easier to do now because no one has a work life that's divorced from their regular life. It's all just mm -hmm. us doing, doing our best, right? So you can think then about a cognitive approach to to work. Can you get things done on the job? Do you understand where you fit with your organization? Um, is, is the workflow and the output predictable and at least consistent enough that you don't feel like you're relearning everything every day? Is the leadership consistent enough that you know, like what company are we working for this week, right? Um, you know, and that, that sense, I think the sense of identity as being identified with your work would fit really well. Like work identification is its own little area of research, but that would fit really well with that cognitive approach. The purpose side, of course, we love because that leads to um, executives like like extra work for less pay. But, uh, you know, like anything that gets people to work really hard, no matter how we treat them, seems to be appealing to a certain type of, of leader out there. But yeah, the motivational side, where are we going? You know, what's our, what are our near-term goals, medium-term goals, long-term goals, you know, all that sort of stuff would work. What motivates you? How can you tap into that intrinsic motivation? That self-determination theory has been so awesome at helping us orient towards. I think the significant side, um, to me, feels a little bit more like the mattering side once you put it in the into context of work, right? So I think I think everyone, every most leaders out there now, and most companies feel like they're supposed to tell their workers that they matter, right? You matter. <laughs> they never bother to explain how they matter. So I would always advise people to say every worker at every company should know not only that they matter, but how they matter. Mm. Right. So what is the what is the uniqueness, the, the appreciation, the value of having someone like me, like you, like the person over there in this organization bringing themselves to this role? And it's not the employee's job to figure that out, you know, blindfolded in a soundproof room. It should be a high priority item for organizations. Anyways, that's that polemic. I think the broader scale, like we look at the uh, George and Park style mattering, existential mattering. I do think like that could, that starts to almost wrap over into purpose, right? Like if you're working for a company, for some people, that's going to be, I do believe that there are people who really like to work for high prestige companies, right? Or high prestige job titles. And so that kind of mattering, that's an appeal towards something abstract and big like oh i must matter because i work for um i'll choose two different examples i work for amazon or i work for patagonia right so you know or i have this job title i'm so i can't believe i'm the first chief happy chief happiness officer for coke petroleum i don't know if they have one right uh versus i can't believe that finally i'm the you know the the president for East Asian operations or something like that. So there's all sorts of things like that, that, that matter in that way. But some people, 
just to pull the Patagonia example out of there, some people would find that mattering, I think, being borne by the strength of purpose of an organization mm-hmm. as well. So I think you get some unique dynamics, but also maybe give people something tangible to do by bringing that meaning, those three dimensions into the workspace. I'm kind of curious about the suffering idea and going back to the fact that so much of meaningful work actually originated or meaning, meaning in life, meaning comes from uh, uh, a relationship to suffering. And I'm curious if you think that there's a relationship between meaningful work and suffering. Uh, there is now. Uh, now that corporate, corporate companies have found out that folks who think their work is meaningful work extra hours and work for fewer benefits and less pay, definitely there's a lot of meaningful work and suffering links. But I think there's another link too, in that in I've tried to talk about this as sort of like the um, the meaningful work compensation package, right? So it's almost as if if you just go down, if you ask one group of people what jobs are meaningful for people to be in, and you ask another group of people which jobs are undercompensated and come with a lot of stress, they're almost the same jobs. Hmm. Teachers, you know, safety officers, firefighters, nurses, any nurses, anyone who works with children, basically. And in a lot of cases, those were jobs that went to um, recent immigrants or jobs that were went to people who were recently uh, allowed into the workforce for various reasons, whether because of emancipation or allowing women to um, have rights, which is a fairly recent phenomena in a lot of countries in, in the current economy. And those are the jobs that are said to be meaningful. They're also jobs that are like really not great. Like There's a lot of suffering involved in, in trying to figure out how to get your way through so these jobs that really pull at what you want to do with your life energy to make a difference in in a work that you can love and feel is is valued and important. And I kind of feel like the economy says, well, people will do that kind of work because of the meaning, but to get someone to, you know, press button on an algorithm that's going to decide where the hedge fund money should go next, that we need to pay them a lot of money for it because there's no meaning in it, maybe. So I'm kind of, I kind of feel like there's a little bit of this historical heritage um, at least since they cleaned up a lot of the worst abuses of like uh, the combination of holy work with money that the Catholic Church got so great at. I'm Catholic, so don't yell at me. But like, you know, like, like the, a lot of the Protestant Reformation was like, you know, holy work is this, monetary work is that, right? So we should try to keep them apart. And I think that that heritage sticks with us. We have this mm-hmm. belief that if you love your job enough, you'll suffer for it. Mm-hmm. And we're only too happy to let people do that. David Bluestein and Ryan Duffy, you know both of them fairly well. They have this great two by two that they use to describe the relationship between meaningful work and decent work, and and the reality that we can we can have you know the maybe maybe the wonderful ideal is to be able to have deeply meaningful work that is also deeply decent. We get paid well for it. We, we have all the benefits that we need. You know, we, we have, we have everything, um, that, uh, that allows us to have the resources to sustain that deeply meaningful work. And then maybe at the opposite end of the spectrum, you would have, you know, deeply unmeaningful and undecent work. The, the person who works in a gas station, 
situation and is, you know, has no control over their schedule and just has to deal with irate and angry customers who berate them and abuse them when they come in and they're selling gas, you know, for, for a living. And then, and then you would have, but those aren't the only two extremes. You could have the person who has deeply meaningful work that is undecent, like potentially the teacher or the nurse or the international aid worker, or the nonprofit person, you know, who, who, where the goal is really to increase the amount of decency. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you can have someone who has the brilliant corner office, the management consultant, you know, selling useless reports that sit on a shelf for someone and, uh, and has no meaning in their, in their world, but a ton of decency. And it's just really interesting to think about this relationship between decency and meaning in our lives. For sure. I mean, it's depressing to think about that. Interesting is another word for depressing, I think from, from a certain standpoint, because to some degree, the decency of a life shouldn't be tied to work that if the decency of what of our needs being taken care of of our dignity being respected if that was happening in society we could do any kind of work we want and it, we would have the decency side filled in so it's the fact that that but that isn't guaranteed to any of us that work really knows its way into the picture and i think you know as an american i feel that very acutely right like my retirement account doesn't still doesn't belong to me it belongs to my employer until i retire right so even my future is is in my employer's hands and so i better be nice about it until i find another job or i'm fired or i retire or something like that so everything my insurance which has been very important over the last year in, in my family's life uh you know that's tied to the employer so this yeah. idea that so much is tied to in the contemporary world the ways of producing is creates the need for a two-by-two -two structure like that one of the other papers that uh, that you were involved with a number of years ago that tried to review the the landscape of meaningful work um, that you did with uh, with Eugenia the Silva and Blake Allen and Ryan Dick and Ryan Duffy, uh, you guys you talked about this ecosystem model of 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 trying to deal with the complexity of meaningful work because uh, to the point that you just described there's so much of it that's actually at a systemic level that's at a that a, that's at a societal level that we need to be able to to deal with potentially first um and then there's all the organizational factors that are going to that are going to be within the control of the organization but not necessarily in the control of the individual and then you have a whole bunch of individual level factors that you can do to to build the kind of purpose and significance and mattering and cohesion that you're describing um and so uh i think that too often we just dive right into the individual and think hey how can we how can we help the the person build more meaning in their career without without doing the work of thinking hey that that individual lives in a context in a in an organization that's probably part of a team that has a manager that is is it has or institutional policies and procedures and that institution lives inside of a whole entire system that at the very least includes you know government and also capitalism and other things that are going to shape uh, and 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 really you know limit to a certain extent the amount of of decency and meaning that they may or may not be able to experience at work weirdly enough i think that manifests in a, a strange way these days which is our obsession with the different generations when you look at some of the data that's emerged you know, from 
uh, I think Kelly Services is is what I'm thinking of. They're a global like temp worker organization, and they they released a survey at one point. They kind of got expectations or, or desires for work of the boomers, Gen X, which is the greatest generation. Clearly, uh, we invented irony so that like without us, the world would be just very obvious. This was at a time when like the millennials are completely different from any other humans that ever existed, just like their parents' generation was. And they want things that people have never even heard of before, like meaningful work. And, you know, you look at the percentages and they're, it's almost identical across those three generations, right? So it's not like we're different as people. It's not like uh, the fact that now we have tons of solutions and tons of coaches and tons of consultants and tons of books that can help us find more meaning in our work. And a lot of that is is based on evidence, actually. Uh, it's not like they don't know about that sort of stuff. I think these generational considerations kind of transmits this worry that it's about things bigger than a person, right? It's This stuff is too big. Like, I can't find meaningful work because I'm a millennial and... I entered the job market during the global financial crisis and there weren't jobs. Like, how am I supposed to find meaningful work if I, if like I've got nine jobs that I work seven hours a week for? So that's, I think, <laughs> that's how I think of the, these generational things now. It's like that's expressing deep concern about systematic and system wide, uh, levers of meaningful work that we don't know how to, we don't know how to get the people who control those levers to listen to us about. Hmm. One of the things that, Again, I've been most inspired by in the way that you've thought about meaningful work is that the role that leadership plays within organizations. Because if there is somebody who potentially does have control over the capacity for me and my team to feel like there's some more relationship to meaningful work, it's it's my boss. It's it's the person who and my boss's boss and kind of leadership all the way up this line. But but what are some of the evidence-based levers that you've that you've seen leaders do well when it comes to creating the context for meaningful work so what can leaders do to to have high expectations of making it more likely that their workers will experience meaning in working with them is really the question at hand like what can leaders do to make their, their employees think it's all meaningful that's a little tough right because people are thinking human beings they're all persnickety in different ways you know what you do that will benefit that will sweep aside the concerns of one group will suddenly agitate the concerns of another group right so we get it we get the complexity like we in this field we work with probabilities and there's a lot of things i can tell there's a lot of things that vastly increase the probability that none of your employees will find it easy to to find it meaningful working for you that stuff is like phoniness crookedness you know, and uh, hypocrisy, right? Those those things in, in little ways and in big ways drain the potential for meaning, right, in anything. You think of a romantic relationship, and if you're, you feel like your partner is always phoning with you, is always off to some shenanigans, right, and is, you know, tells you to do one thing and does the opposite, it's going to, that's going to create challenges anyway. So I think, like, we're, we recognize those clusters, even beyond things like hostility or incompetence or like having old-fashioned uh goals for what a company like in that sector should be doing still right whatever it is um if 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 leaders are behaving in in, in those just meaning draining ways like good luck you know good luck 
bring in whoever you want to as your consultant for a week and you know all the good all the good feelings will be gone within six days after that so so on the flip side then so where where can leaders think about stuff that's within their their realm of influence that would I- increase this idea so i came up with a I tried really hard. It's misspelled, but I did try really hard to get to spell the the typical traditional way. But this is the word karma, but it's karma with a C. And I just couldn't. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. So I gave up, which is which is an important thing to do. Uh, and I just left with karma, right? So C-A-R-M-A. And um, it's just from the literature. I just took a look at all the literature that had existed on on leadership, on organizational behavior, organizational development um management and culture and just started sorting things the way that seemed to make sense when there was data on it and so the first one is is pretty easy to come up with this is clarity right c clarity is always good Um, when it comes to meaning the kind of clarity that probably makes the most sense is around the mission and what the organization is really all about right so when you go to an organization and you want to know where it's going, right? <laughs> you want to know what are we here for? What does this company do? Um, and instead, you get the sense that someone just went to a, a random word generator to come up with the company mission that day, uh, or the quarterly vision, or the re-strategization of whatever. You're just like, well, who cares what you just said? Like, I can't tell you how many times you've gone through uh, strategic planning exercises at my university and. Honestly, if I was in charge of our unit, I'd just say like, well, we're done with that. We can just pull out any of the past eight and send it to the people who don't care this time, right? So, you know, like you get the point, like, how can that, how can that, we're not going anywhere in particular. So let's just get through today. When you're getting employees to think like, how do I get through today or the next performance evaluation, then they don't care about what the company is doing. They care about how they're surviving in the company. And that's a different approach. So that sense of clarity is about, setting and communicating a vision for what what working here means for everybody so next comes the a which stands for authenticity in this case and it's not that kind of uh authenticity allows people to be jerks right they don't get to just say i think your, your idea is stupid and you're incompetent i thought you wanted me to be authentic so authenticity from the humanistic tradition and the existential tradition is is really about our, our unique effort to bring out who we are in the best ways possible and to make room for growth <laughs> it's not to make room for stagnation i never have to change because that's who i am so there's that piece now thinking about as a leader how do you convey that a big part of that's going to be consistency a big part of that's going to be clarity on how you're acting with ethics there's not incredibly special rules for you and other leaders that that you get to follow and everyone else has to just suck it up right but Again, from meaning standpoint, we probably want to pull that back to some sort of connection with the mission and the vision for the organization. So can a leader talk about this mission that they're so clear about and show why it's an authentic mission, how that how we get that line of sight between what I'm asking you to do this month and what this company is trying to do and why that's so important. So the authenticity is is about sort of embodying a reason to believe that the mission is is noble and that the organization is worth dedicating that kind of like meaningful energy to number two is no number three is the r respect 
And it was really tempting to, to, to say relationships for that one. But I think there's like no end to the ways in which relationships go wrong in the workplace, right? Like all of the metaphors seem to be really bad for workplace relationships. They're like, you know, survival of the fittest. There's, you know, authoritarian versions of relationships. There's the family ones, which I think are the worst. Like we're all a family here because that just means I get to exploit you and, you know, ask for your time and your boundaries to be dissolved in my favor. Like it messes people up not to know what to expect when they, they're supposed to be a family and you do anything for your family, but what, why then does your boss get a raise and you don't, right? So, so I, I focused on respect as kind of like at least one thing we can agree on about relationships, even with people we can't stand in our organization. And so that's like really learning how to behave such that everyone feels like in your interactions with them, that they, you were, that was a valued moment. Uh, yeah. So, so there's other people who can tackle that, but I think like if you're going to have one thing in place, a culture of respect is better than a culture of bad boundaries or bullying and, and that sort of stuff. And I don't think people know how to be respectful as, as much as they think they do, including myself. So, so that's why I chose respect for R, but it's really around positive and supportive um, connections that don't put people in difficult and over-leveraged emotional positions. The fourth M is, the fourth letter is M, and the M stands for mattering. And this is really a key bedrock, I think, managerial and leadership job. You know, employees don't wander around the, the internet and the streets writing job descriptions for companies that they want to apply to. Somebody somewhere decide we need to hire 30 people, we need to hire 3,000 people, they need to do these sorts of things. Why is, why is it so hard then to communicate when someone fills that position or for anyone in the corporation to, to understand that that person's you're, hey, you're fulfilling a really important role for us. Here's how it connects to the job I do. Here's how it connects to the products that we produce. Here's how it makes people's lives better through the services or the products that we get into the customer's hands. And here's how it's helping us move along towards our mission. Like who should know that better than the people running the company and make, and deciding that they need to hire people? So I think this is left up to chance too often. And at least in my very limited experiences of having, uh, I haven't had, I've had this job for like 15 years now, so I don't, I don't bounce around very much, but uh, every place that you go, the people who are most eager to tell you um, what it's like working here and how they treat people and how much we matter are the people who feel the opposite, right? So you're leaving a lot, you're risking a lot by not taking the time to make sure in an authentic way that everyone who works with you knows why they matter, because otherwise the people who hate working there will tell them why they don't. And then the last A that we came up that I came up with was autonomy. And I think this is a lot of these things exist on sliding scales, right? There's certain jobs like, uh, you know, making the the web space telescope where you don't want a lot of freelancing and improvising. I believe brain surgery is not one where there's like a million ways to do the job and everyone should have their own unique signature on it. But in general, People want to be able to work as themselves, not as pre-robotic meat puppets, right? So they want to be able to be who they are. And that's how they learn about themselves. That's how they learn about what's important to them. That's how they learn how they make a difference. That's how they learn increased capacities for caring for other folks through organizational citizenship behaviors or better customer service. That's how they learn that there's a place for them in the organization. And then they'll take it upon themselves to say nice things about you on Reddit or LinkedIn or Glassdoor or whatever it is, right? 
but it's scary for managers to to put more control and you know personalization in the hands of employees but they're not robots you know so they want to they want some degree and that probably requires conversations right it's more than mandating so some employees don't want more autonomy that's great their autonomy is knowing their boundaries and you're respecting them some employees feel like they've got a million great ideas about three of which would be good and the rest would bankrupt your company or through lawsuits their autonomy deserves being treated with respect so they see that you consider what they had to say and here's why right so it's a little bit more work but i think the research suggests you get a much much more engaged effective productive and an enjoyable worker to be around karma it, it is such a it is such a powerful model i i'm really i've seen a lot of leadership models in my days and i i love this model so much for a few different reasons number one because clarity, authenticity, respect, mattering, and autonomy. I mean, those, those five things are fundamentally about doing the right thing. You know, there's so much about ethics that, um, that is, that is at the core at both an interpersonal level, at an organizational level, at a potential societal level that is actually embedded in those five things. If you're doing it really, really well. And, uh, and that, that in and of itself seems like a profound, call for uh, allowing people to uh to really you know bring the best of themselves to do important work in the world if if that's what it is going to be about the the second thing that i really love about this model is uh is the fact that you have done an extraordinary job about creating a relationship between all of these things. That it's not just one of them. It's not that you just do autonomy. It's a, no, it's about balancing autonomy and respect and clarity. And you help someone understand how they matter while you're doing it. And you're doing it as the most authentic self that you can be while you, like you have to do all of those things. It's not just about picking a few that you like. It's a, it's a really comprehensive model that 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 requires a lot of work. I mean, it's not a simple set of leadership behaviors, but it's really profound in terms of helping not only other people experience a sense of meaning in their work, but also for you as a leader and as a manager, potentially to see your role as a deeply meaningful and important thing. Yeah. I think a lot of folks who get into leadership positions wanted that before it started to seem like if they put effort towards it, other people didn't. And what they were being evaluated on was different than whether their workers liked being there and stayed, then it maybe got trained out of them a little bit. Uh, I'll say two quick things about karma. One is like, I forgot my favorite thing that I say about it. Like karma, it's you reap what you sow as a leader, right? So there's trying to be meta. But then, uh, you know, the other thing I would say is that I, I appreciate so much hearing your words, but not everyone thought it was particularly comprehensive. And one of those people was, uh nico rose uh who is doing some consultancy in germany was like let's let's measure karma and i was so excited because i know that the german word for for clarity is klarenheit and it starts with a yeah, k. And i was like k. oh my god finally we get we get karma the way that i was told it was spelled uh, but he's like but we need to add another a at the end and this is this is really i think a very uh, um millennial uh reflective concern and this is he called it actualization, the, the this third A and the sixth letter of karma overall. So now we got karma, but it's got a K, but two A's, so I still can't get it right. 
but this is the idea that you know one of the big priorities particularly for um like in some of the research they've done with millennial and and, and emerging generations is people want an, an avenue to advance and actualize their potential within an organization. So they want to get better at what they do. They want to have more opportunities. They want to learn more about themselves. And uh, something about the original karma wasn't capturing that sense. So um, my instinct would have been to like include that as an individual level variable and a model for how individuals can pursue meaning. Uh, but at, but Nico's work um, as a consultant. Um, and as working in leadership positions and corporations already indicated like, well, yeah, we, you have to provide room for that though. And you should provide opportunities for that. So he developed a, a measure of those six dimensions and, and looked at some cool outcome data. And I'll just, I'll just say one of my favorite uh, items that people can use to quickly benchmark job satisfaction. And that's, I would recommend my job to a friend, right? Oh, a little NPS and uh, that promoter score. Yeah. 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 Right. So this was people filling out the the karma squared, or karma, karma, uh, like however you want to pronounce that about their work and their managers and the folks that they reported to. And those who had higher scores were much, much more likely to recommend. Well, first of all, they're, they're more likely to plan to stay with the corporation. They're less likely to be actively looking for other jobs and they're more likely to recommend working there for a friend. And mm. he did another study uh, that I would, as a part of uh, collaborating the write-up on about they stayed there longer too. So so we have evidence now in, in that form that folks who feel like they're having those those karma, getting that karma from their leadership or management are happier just the way that, you know, the earlier literature suggested they might be. So, hmm. so that's pretty exciting. So fun, fun that you like the model. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't comprehensive though. So who knows what it'll spell in the future. There's always room for growth. That's, there's That's always right. room for opportunities to, to to grow and evolve. That's what science is. And so maybe that that leads me to my second last question, which is what do you feel like is missing within the field of meaningful work? If you were to if you were to encourage researchers to think uh to think about what more needs to be studied in this domain, what would you point to? Well, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like the stuff that we've been talking about already, the system wide stuff, the the context, the ecosystem in which an employee, a work unit, a team, a company, a sector, all this stuff is, you know, like nesting dolls. Although like all the dolls are part of other dolls, you know, so it's like an incredibly complex system. And our approach seems to be now to uh to get feet in the door for those who have the control of the levers, right? So like big name companies, big name leaders uh, with versions of meaningful work that don't seem very good, right? So so a big challenge, I don't know how scientists can do better at this. Like I try, but I'm terrible. No one wants to listen to me, right? At, at uh, no one who, who's in charge of like a $30 million budget wants to listen to me. I should put it that way. And maybe that's good. But, you know, we can't do, we can't repeat the mistakes that we've made in the past by just relabeling what the, whatever the training program is of the month as purpose work. Now, I see, I see a lot about purpose. Every one of the big five accounting consulting firms that exist, I'm aware that I'm aware of seem to have a purpose program. I can't imagine that they're all great. I can't imagine that they're all 
trying to get at an ethical approach to, to meaningful work that makes people feel uh, respected, dignified, and excited to put their labor towards uh, an organizational effort, right? Maybe, but I haven't seen one that looks awesome yet. If you're if you're that person, share it with me. I'd be I'd be really excited. So one of the most important things we need, and I don't know that anyone can do this on their own, is we need people who are respected by folks who are, in, who are pulling the levers to collaborate with or consume good research and bring the best, most accurate message to leadership with the highest fidelity and standards possible. Right. So I think. I think we need people willing to walk away and not and not get repeat business from a company if it if it means uh telling them some some lies, making them feel better with a highly emotional one week engagement and then you know knowing it's just gonna all be undone by the by the uncaring heart that slowly thrums at the center of that organization, right? So there's something about that, but even bigger than that, there's so little support for people who are trying to do the really best version of this work, right? Because the ideas are complicated. Like you said, it takes more work. Um, this whole meaning thing, that's the biggest complaint people have is it's not as easy as counting your blessings or you know, breathing through your nose and then through your mouth, right? It takes work over time. The rewards are worth it, but it's a hard sell when someone has to do, someone has to move productivity numbers for this quarter through a different means, right? So um, that's hard to do. So I think people need a lot of backing. They need a lot of cover. And for me, in a lot of cases, that seems to come from folks who can really be heard at a, at a policy level. So we're missing, uh, I know Ed Diener did a lot of amazing work around subjective well-being, life satisfaction, happiness, and eventually even some flourishing. But Ed was, Ed was influential. Ed had people's ears. There are people who have the policy makers' ears right now um, eventually down to feeling like meaning is an important policy point. There are standards in the industry, and those aren't set by individual workers like me going and saying, hmm, I, I would enjoy this more if you didn't treat me like a like an idiot who doesn't do everything that you want. So that's what I would love to see emerge is like really strong policy voices who care about the fidelity of the research, care about the ethicality of of when groups of people get together and care about the dignity of the individual who could actually get people who are in charge of some levers, some standards, and can set expectations that then the corporations themselves will have cover to conform to. And they can say, yeah, this is worth investing in because this is the direction, the policy, the regulation, the expectation, the education and training is all going. So whoever can do that, that's what I think, that's what I think we need. And on that note, what a perfect way of being able to wrap up this episode because that's that's ultimately that's ultimately what the aspiration is is uh, is is how do we get how do we get more great quality science into people's hands so that they can make informed and educated choices and create a wave. And Mike, you are. Um, you are such a model of being able to put science that is extremely high quality into uh, into ways that are accessible. Thank you so much for being able to share your wisdom and your extraordinary set of of learnings that you have amassed over the last couple of decades on meaning in life and meaning at work, and uh, and share it with our audience. Thank you so much, and uh, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Meaningful Work Matters. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. 
And if this episode resonated with you, please take a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us make this podcast better and reach more listeners. You can connect with me, Andrew Soren, on LinkedIn, or visit www.eubd.ca to learn more about eudaimonic by design. Finally, if what you heard today spoke to you, tell your colleagues and people in your community about our podcast. We really appreciate your support in making meaningful work matter. See you next time.